several times where I felt like the thing that I was hoping for or wanting to happen was just like impossible. It just wouldn't, it just wasn't gonna happen. Um, I, I remember when I got the call from the first church that I applied to, to be pastor of. I was 26 years old. We had uh, just two kids at the time. And you know, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, but I had gone and interviewed at this church and I had preached multiple times and I thought things were going really well. And then I got the call and they said, uh, we really don't want to get in the way of you finishing college. And so, and so we're not going to hire you. Um, I, when I was fighting Trent on the floor and we'd spend 20 or 30 minutes uh, wrestling and fighting on the floor or in the car or in the ditch on the side of the highway, and I was restraining him to keep him from hurting himself or hurting uh, others in the family, and I thought we would never be able to just simply live our lives um, without worrying about him being violent and aggressive. I remember the week leading up to uh, our first Sunday as a, as a church, just a little over 15 years ago in the Kawasaki building on the west end of town, and, and we had put door knockers out, and we'd run radio ads, and and uh, we had to sign up on the, on the window, but I didn't know if people would show up. And I knew the statistics that most church plants, maybe not most, many church plants uh, die within the first three years. Uh, there's also a statistic out there that says uh, if a church plant doesn't have their own building within seven years, like a 75 or 80% chance that they will not survive as a church. And so I, I remember <laughs> being up with a church early. In, in fact, the, uh, the city inspector came to the building at 11 o'clock Saturday night to sign the papers so that we could have church there the next morning. Uh, and I, you know, I didn't know. I, I know we had some people coming, but I didn't know if people would come and there that first Sunday was uh, Pam and, and Jim and Julie were there. I, I'll bet you've had times in your life um, where you thought there was no way this can happen. Like This is impossible. It, it's, I'm like, I'm crazy for even thinking about it. And, and, uh, and, and maybe... Maybe it had to do with a relationship or maybe you were about to propose and you thought there's no way she's going to say, say yes. Or maybe it was a job promotion or trying to get that dream house and, and, and you know, you're like, you're there, but you're not there. And you're like, ah, I just don't know if it's going to happen. I think we spend so much of our lives believing that the impossible is, is just that, that the impossible is just impossible. But I think if faith in God shows us anything, it's that when God is involved, the impossible becomes probable. I like that word right there. <laughs> when God's involved, the impossible becomes probable. 
And so I want to look today, we're going to take a pause from our Bad Religion series, and I want to look today at some of the times in history when God said something was going to happen that seemed just absolutely, like just crazy. Like there's no way this can happen. It just completely goes against all rational thought or understanding, physical ways, things, logical possibility. The times when God said this is going to happen and there was just no way and then, and then it happened. So we're going to start off, we're going to go in kind of chronological order today. So we're going to start off with one of the very first ones in Genesis chapter 6, and it's the story of Noah. And so God talks to Noah, and he says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and out with pitch, and this is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Now, um, let me give you some background to this passage. Prior to the flood, I believe that no one had ever seen or heard or knew what rain was. There's some text in the Bible. I I believe there was a water canopy over the earth, this scientific uh, stuff to to prove that. Um, The oxygen content was high on the planet. In fact, the planet basically was a tropical paradise, the whole planet at that point. Um, and it didn't rain. The Bible says that uh, at night, uh, dew would come up from the ground and would cover. That's how the ground got watered. And so imagine you're Noah. You're already ostracized from the rest of society because um, right before this passage, God says, everybody is corrupt. They've sold out to evil. It's, a, it's not a good situation. And so um, Noah, who's the only righteous person on the planet at that point, um, has nobody to talk to, right? This is like he has no friends. And then all of a sudden, God comes to him and says, hey, uh, Noah, I want you to build this ark. Um, and, uh, you know, you can invite people to come with you or whatever, but like, I'm going to save you from the rain that is going to come in this ark. And so Noah's going out and he's like telling his his friends and his extended family, like, hey, I'm building this ark. God told me to build this ark, and uh, you want to come with me because it's going to rain and flood the earth. And they're like, uh, what's rain, you crazy old man? And, and he was pretty old at that point. Noah was 500 years old when God s- spoke this to him. And even with his three sons, who were only maybe 100 or so um, years old at, at this point, how are these four guys going to build a 450-foot-long, 75-foot-wide, 45-foot-tall ark on dry ground, nowhere near water. This is, this is, if you're looking for a definition of impossible, this is pretty close to that. Uh, Let me give you just an an idea. The ceilings in here um, are about 22 feet. The ark was 45 feet tall. Uh, One 500-year-old man and 300-year-old guys who were still wet behind the ears and didn't know how to do anything. This is what God said. There is no way that this can happen. Like, can you imagine, like I'm building this ark, 
Oh, is it going to rain? Is it not going to rain? What am I doing? What if I build this thing and then nothing happens and then I look like even a bigger idiot? I don't, like, God's not talking to me. Like, this is just crazy. There's no way for this to happen at all. And then look what happens in 7-11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, it took him probably 75 years 75 years, that's our lifetime, to build the ark. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great burst forth, the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were open, so it rained. And so despite the impossibility, God did just what he said he would with Noah. So move forward a few hundred years and you come to the story of Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me, be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And then Abraham said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? You can see he was already starting to lose it because he was 99 and he said he was a hundred. He's off just a little bit. Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Now look, this is ancient times, right? This is a long, long, long time ago. But even those people understood that at a certain age, it becomes impossible to bear a child. Physiologically impossible. Emotionally, whew, uh, no thank you. 51, no thank you. Not interested in having another child. Uh, physically, physically, can you imagine at 90 years old getting up in the middle of the night to go take care of a kid? Like it just doesn't work. This is crazy. This is nonsense. This could never happen. Both Abraham and Sarah understood that they were way past the point of bearing children. Like that door wasn't just closed, it was barred and somebody burnt the house down. There's no way that they are going to get pregnant and, and have a child. Um, it's just not going to happen. And so after all of these agonizing years that they had resigned themselves to a, a, a childless life for the two of them, they just thought this dream of having a child was over, that maybe God had forgotten his promise to them. And so when God finally shows up and says, it's time, Abraham laughs because he's 99 and Sarah is 90. And he's like, there is no way, God, for this to happen. And God is like, oh yeah, uh, just wait for another year. And so here's what happens in the next verse. Sarah conceived, imagine that, and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Once again, God does the impossible with unlikely people. We spent a lot of time um, this year just in message series talking about the people of Israel 
and uh, escaping Egypt, God's power and provision there allows them to escape Egypt. We talked uh, through their wandering in the desert and as they ended up next to the Jordan River, the last series we did, the Shema series, takes place when Israel is camped on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They're preparing to cross the Jordan and begin to take possession of the land that God promised Abraham way back in these passages. Uh, and Moses is about to die, and so he gets up and he gives them the Shema. He gives them this big long talk and kind of summarizes the last 40 years for them and what they need to do to cross the Jordan and enter into the Promised Land. Um, and uh, and this is a this is a big moment. And we've talked about all the stuff that led up to that moment on the eastern side of the Jordan River, but we haven't talked about what happened next. So Moses dies, Joshua is put in charge, and the, the very first city that the people were going to encounter as they crossed the Jordan River was the city of Jericho. Now Jericho was on the edge of Canaan and was right there next to the Jordan River. And, and so um, when they built the city, they understood that there were gonna be people there trying to attack it and um, conquer it. And so they built Jericho with some of the largest walls in existence at the time. And so Jericho all around the city had these great big massive walls. And remember the Israelites, although they'd had some skirmishes out in the open country, they were not fighters. They, they were brick makers. They, were, uh, they, they had sheep and cows and things like that. Um, and, and so they, they weren't like just natural fighters. They didn't have a standing military. They had men who were of military age, and that was about it. And so they crossed the Jordan River, and they come. Their first city is this massively protected city with these enormous walls around it. Um, and they looked at the city, and they're like, there's no way. There's just no way that we're going to capture this city um, with a few swords and maybe a couple bows and um, some pitchforks and whatever. Like this is just not going to happen. And so look, look at what uh, goes on in Joshua chapter six. Jericho was shut up inside and outside. So they knew Israel was coming, like all of the nations knew what was Israel was doing. They knew Israel was coming and so they closed the doors, they barred them, they went up on the wall, they were watching, they were worried, they were shut up inside and outside because of Israel. None, none of them went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see I have given Jericho into your hand. Now. Nothing has happened yet, right? God always does that. He's like, hey, I'm gonna do this and, and you just have to trust me. I have given Jericho into your hand with its kings and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Yeah, right. Never happened before. It's, it's impossible. 
This is not, this is not going to end well. If you're Joshua and the people of Israel and you're standing and looking at the walls of Jericho and God's like, hey, just march around them and they're going to fall down. You're like, mm, no, <laughs> that's not good. Like we've been here before, right? Like this is not how this is done. Um, see, what happens is a nation comes to war against another nation that is in a walled city um, and they have to shut off everything so that they run out of food and water inside the city that they need to get that and then they begin to die of starvation and without, without water. And then we're gonna build siege ramps up against the city so that we can get up or we're gonna try to use a battering ram somehow against the door of the city. We're gonna try and force our way in. That's how you conquer a city with walls around it. And God says, no, that's not what you're, going to do. Um, instead of your men of war going and fighting the city, I want your men of war to march around the city. Now, marching was something they were really good at, and probably they were unhappy that they were going to have to do this, because they were like, uh, hey, God, didn't we just march for 40 years in the desert? <laughs> and now we get here, and we're supposed to start fighting, and you tell us, don't fight, do some more marching. Yippee. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense. Everybody knows you can't capture a city by marching around it. Standing at the walls of Jericho, that must have seemed impossible, especially if you're not planning to shoot any arrows or throw any spears or build any of those siege ramps. But look what happens in verse 20. The people shouted, the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people, the people of Israel, went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. An impossible situation, an unlikely people, and God makes it happen. Impossible things don't just happen in the Old Testament, though. They uh, happen in other places. In Mark's biography of Jesus, as soon as Peter declares that Jesus is the promised king from God, Jesus begins telling his followers that he's going to be killed. Here's what he says in Mark chapter 8. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Um, by the way, if you wondered why Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, I'll tell you, uh, it's from Old Testament prophecy. Jesus referred to himself that way. Um, instead of the Son of God, this Son of Man is a reference to being the Son of God. That's why Jesus used it. The religious leaders knew what he was saying there. Uh, and so he tells them, I'm going to die, and after three days, I'm going to rise again. Now, the disciples heard Jesus say this over and over again. Like, he warned them over and over again. Three times, at least in the Gospel of Mark, uh, Jesus tells them, hey, I just want you to be prepared. The religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Romans, they're going to kill me. But three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. Um, now, the Disciples had seen Jesus bring other people back from the dead, quite a few other people back from the dead. 
Um, but it's one thing for you to bring somebody else who's died back from the dead. If you're the dead to life bringer and you die, who is left to bring you from the dead? Nobody is the answer to that. And so the disciples are like, <laughs> yeah, whatever. This is not going to happen. Like, remember, they believed that Jesus was to be the king, that he was going to conquer Rome, that he was going to rule Israel and all nations. And they were going to be, the disciples were going to be at his side when he does this. They're going to be his cabinet. And so when he says, I'm going to die and I'm going to be buried three days later, they're like, no, that's impossible. No one can come back from the dead like this. Nobody believed that it would happen. And then here's what happens. It was the third hour when they crucified him. And those who passed by derided him, they wagged their heads saying, aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Everybody thought that Jesus um, was a fool, was a liar, and that soon he would be dead. Nobody believed that he was gonna die. And then once he did die, Nobody believed that he was coming back from the dead. In fact, the religious leaders had the tomb sealed, not because they believed Jesus was going to come back like he said he would, but they thought that his disciples might come and take his body and kind of fake a resurrection. But Jesus' disciples um, were not thinking about faking anything. They were devastated that Jesus was dead. Everything they believed, everything they had hoped for was just gone. And, and they're standing there. Jesus is dead. He's buried. And they're like, he must not have been the promised king. Like he couldn't have been the promised king. Otherwise, he'd still be alive. This does not make any sense. And, and, and the disciples really at that point, they don't believe anything anymore. They're like, never again. Am I, am I going to get hoodwinked into something like this? They were just Done. At least they didn't believe anything um, for the next three days. Because in verse 14, we read this. Afterward, Jesus appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at table. They were eating dinner. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So he told them he was going to die and rise again in three days. And then people saw him and told his disciples that this is what happened and they didn't believe it. And he's like, hey, I, I told you ahead of time. And so in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and even today, God's people are constantly faced with situations that seem entirely impossible for us. In fact, there are some things we don't even consider in our lives because we just think it's too crazy. It's not even worth thinking about. If my mom were here, she would say, those things are things you just shouldn't waste your breath on. That's what I got a lot growing up. <laughs> I'd start telling her my dream and my thing. And she's like, don't waste your breath. It's not gonna happen. It's impossible. Don't think about it anymore. But as followers of Jesus, how do we face impossible situations? How should we face impossible things? Things that we're just like, there's no way for this to happen. How are we supposed to face those impossible things? Well, um, let me give you a few ways. In Matthew 19, 26, 
Jesus told his disciples that um, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And so when we face impossible things, we should remember that the God we serve says it might be impossible for you, but it's not impossible for me. Or what about when Paul says that our faith is the same as Abraham's faith when we believe in, in God? He said, the God who gives life to the dead, and I like this part, calls into existence the things that do not already exist. That's the kind of God we serve. The God that sees what we see, but then says, nope, it's this other thing over here. And I'm going to speak this thing into existence, even though it's not. That The God that we serve is not weak, and he's not uninterested. He's not incapable of meeting our needs. He is a God who is actually sovereign over all things. And so we're not, we don't serve a God who's concerned with how things look because all things become possible when God is involved. He's able to call into existence things that do not currently exist. And that means that God is not limited by any of the things that limit us. There's a lot of things that limit us, aren't there? There's a lot of things. I, uh, I'm not strong enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. There's a lot of things that we could point out that limit us. But God is not limited by any of the things that limit us. And so even the impossible becomes probable. And so um, what does all of this mean? As we look at these stories of impossible things that God did through a bunch of people who we think should have never been able to accomplish those things, what does it, what does it all mean? Well, it means that it doesn't matter um, when the odds are against us. It doesn't matter because God is for us. It's supposed to say more there. I don't know why it doesn't. But anyway, when the odds are against us, God is for us. And, and that should give us hope. That should give us hope in those moments. And maybe today you're in a situation where you think it's impossible. And, and, and maybe, it's, maybe it's relational. Maybe there's a struggle between you and your spouse or somebody else and you think there's... This is not going to get resolved. Or um, maybe it's about work. Maybe it's a financial thing. And you just think there's no way this is going to happen. When the odds are against you, God is for you. And so you don't have to, like, I, I know we worry and, and, and we struggle with this stuff, but I, God wants us to know that nothing is impossible when he's involved. The impossible is probable when God's on our side. We believe that God can and will do what he's promised. Let's pray. God, I thank you 
for your great love for us. And I thank you for the way that you have consistently throughout history done the impossible on behalf of your people. In, in, in fact, it's, it's not just about being the impossible things become likely. They become probable because you are able. And so God, help us always, even in the darkest places, to remember that we serve a God who can do the impossible, who can speak into existence things that do not exist, who can make walls fall down, and who can give hundred-year-old men and women babies and can come back from the dead. You are a God that makes impossible things probable. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna have the um, leadership team come up here. Um, how, how many of you came today expecting to hear some news? Anybody come? Okay. So... <laughs> Some of that is, um, is, is going to happen. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse, verse 20. Oh. Oh, it's right there. Good. Good job, Julie. It's up there. <laughs> now to him who is able, there's that word again, prob, able, probable, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or imagine. Are you a good imaginer? Raise your hand if you're a good imaginer. You're good, okay, good, there's a few of you. I, I am a dreamer and I hate it because I'm always dreaming about stuff that's like just never gonna happen. This is very frustrating uh, to me. But here's what that means when I read Ephesians 3.20. I go, God is able to do far more abundantly than all I imagine? That's a lot. Because I can imagine a whole lot. And God does that according to his power, which is actually at work within us. Paul says to him be glory for forever and ever. Now, I think that the word able describes God pretty well. When the task seems too big for us, God is able. When we don't think we have the ability or the strength to accomplish what he's called us to, God is able. When we don't think, uh, when we're facing a situation, we don't have the resources to accomplish, what is God? God is able. When the coffin has been closed and the lady has sung, God is able, even in those moments, God is able to do anything. And so um, for 15 years, real life has been looking for a home. And for 15 years, God has closed those doors. And I just told you I'm a dreamer. And every time that happens, I am devastated. Because I see places and we talk and I, I go to the leadership and I'm like, hey, there's this place or there's that place. Um, 
th- th- this is how desperate we have, we have gotten. Um, not too long ago, the trading station, the, the pawn shop on the west end of town, do you know that is a big cement, weird-looking building? Um, that went up for sale. And, and one of the team calls and is like, hey, have you checked out the trading station yet? It's just, just went up for sale. Go look at it. Uh, anyway, here's what we faced for 15 years. The building is nowhere near big enough to hold all of us and all of our children. Uh, the parking lot is too small. The lot is too small. The building might be big enough, but there's not enough parking. Or there's plenty of parking, but the building is tiny and they want a whole bunch of money for it. And so even if we were able to get the building, we couldn't add on to the building. We wouldn't be able to meet and it would just be a, a mess. And so for 15 years, it's been disappointment after disappointment. And, and honestly, uh, for me personally, I kind of had gotten to a point in the last few months where I'm like, because the last thing we, we looked at, you and I went and uh, talked to somebody. I, I, th- I thought going into this, this is what God's been waiting for. <laughs> this, this piece of property, this is what God's been waiting for, and it's right where we want, and it's all of these things, it's going to be great. And we went in, and it just, just did not work, work out. Uh, and so I had come to this point where I'm like, well, uh, maybe at least for all of my life, or as long as you let me keep preaching here, we're just going to be a portable church and I'm just going to be running cords uh, for hours every Sunday morning. But two days ago, I delivered a letter of intent expressing real life's desire to purchase a building. A building that... Um, as, as not only in our estimation move in ready, but really kind of checks all of our boxes, a building that I never would have ever considered or dreamed about because it was just too crazy to imagine, which is why it feels like maybe God is involved here. And so over the last few weeks, we've done a lot of praying and a lot of talking and believe that God has opened a door uh, at this time, in this place, for this to happen. And so we are now waiting to hear whether our offer will be accepted or whether we'll get a counter offer from them. So what does this mean um, for us as uh, the people of real life? Well, uh, it doesn't just mean we might have a home. What it means is, that we may have a headquarters from which we can continue to fulfill God's call to help every person possible find real life in Jesus and look more like him every day. And we'll be able to do that every day because we'll have a building that's ours every day, 24 seven, which is amazing. It means that we're gonna all have to ask God if there's more we can give or more that we can do because it's gonna take more than what we have now to get where God is leading us. So buckle up. It means we're gonna need more people serving and greeting and working with the kids ministry, which by the way, will have their own space. It doesn't mean that we can relax because we have a home, yay, our work is done. No, um, 
It means we'll have to rethink and reimagine what it means to be real life church here in the El Dorado community. But it also means this, and I think it's pretty cool, that when we invite somebody to church, we'll be inviting them to our home. And we don't get to do that now. Um, but that day is gonna be pretty amazing. So the leadership team is up here because we want you to know that we are in agreement, that God has opened this door. We are in agreement that we should do everything we can to follow him through it, believing that he will help us and provide what is needed to make this dream a reality. And I'd like to be able to stand up here today and, and give you all of the details and tell you everything, but um, unfortunately, the details of this offer um, are, uh, I don't know what the word is. Well, I'll just tell you, it's a precarious situation. We wanted to bring you in on the situation. We didn't want to just stand up one Sunday morning and go, hey, guess what? We have a building. Uh, we, we wanted you to be aware of what was going on as soon as possible. And so while we can't give you specifics about our offer and uh, we cannot tell you right now which building it is, we wanted you to know because we want you to be praying. We want you to be, be praying. And part of the reason we're not giving you more information is because we don't want you talking to your friends and family and neighbors and people in the community. This is a precarious situation. Um, so be excited and, and be praying. So here's what um, we're gonna do. We're gonna do what we've been doing. We're gonna pray that God brings to completion what we believe he has started and that the offer we have made is accepted or comes back with a reasonable counter offer. Because I'll tell you what we have, we have all agreed on, that we do not wanna be in a situation where we are house poor, where all of our money is sunk into a building and we're up here every week going, you gotta give so we can do, da, 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 da. We do not, I know too many churches are in that situation. We do not wanna be in that situation. We want to be able to continue to minister and do the things that God has called us to do and have a building and a place where which we can do that from. Um, so no matter what happens, we believe God will make a way. So pray that God brings to completion what he started. Secondly, Pray that God provides financially um, because we're believing that if brought, God brought us to this, he must have a way to make it happen. But it will take large and small gifts and all of our participation to make this happen. You've probably heard me say before, if we're gonna help every person possible find real life in Jesus and look more like him every day, it's gonna take every person present. And it's time to step in and get involved there. So pray that God provides financially. Pray that should our offer be accepted and we have a home and a building that we don't treat it like a bunker we hide in, but we treat it like a beachhead from which God brings more souls to Jesus. We don't wanna get into a place where we go, oh, we're here, we've arrived, we're a real church, 
now we don't have to do anything anymore. Our call is still the same. Our mission is still the same, whether we have a building or not. And so we want to be thinking about that and continuing to, to think about how we can help more and more people. Lastly, pray, pray that we continue, no matter what, to help every person possible find real life in Jesus and look more like him every day. And so here's what I've done. I have set a timer on my phone for four o'clock in the afternoon. Every day at four, until this deal is done, my alarm is gonna go off and I am gonna pray. I'm gonna pray that hearts are moved. The hearts that need to be moved are, are moved to accept the offer and make this deal happen. Um, that God provides financially and that most importantly, through this process, more people come to know Jesus because real life has a home. So, um, we had intended to give you a little more information today, and I'm sorry that we can't. Honestly, I hope, um, and I may be completely out of turn here, uh, but I hope I hope that um, we could be celebrating Thanksgiving <laughs> in our own building. Wouldn't that be amazing? Man. So, um, I, did, you, did anybody else have anything to say? Well said. <laughs> okay. Um, so what we're going to do right now is we're just going to kick off our four o'clock um, prayer time. Uh, we, we, like, I don't know how to convey this to you. This is, this is serious. This is, this could happen, people, and it could happen rapidly. So um, uh, be praying and join me at four o'clock in the afternoon every day to, to pray, Okay. But let's start, start that now if anybody wants to join in. God, <laughs> we come before you as the God of the impossible. And we just thank you for bringing us to this point. 15 years of uh, wanting and seeking and disappointment could all be forgotten <laughs> if, if you bring this about. And so we stand here today and we, we just stand here like, like Noah and Abraham and Sarah and, <laughs> and Joshua and the Israelites and Jesus. And, and we stand here and we go, God, the the walls are too big. We're too old. There's not enough of, of us. The, the situation just doesn't seem like it could work, work out. It's just impossible. And yet you are the God who makes the impossible probable. You are the God who speaks into existence things that don't exist. You are the God who raises the dead and makes the blind see and the deaf hear. You can do anything. And so God, um, 
in the hands of the people who are going to be making the decision is our offer. We pray that you would bless it, that as they see that offer, that for whatever reason, they accept it, um, or they come back with a good counter off, and that we're able to move forward. God, we would love to have a home, to have a place from which to continue to do all the things that you have called us to do in this town and for these people. And so uh, bless this time. Thank you for the opportunity to trust you, to test our faith, to move forward believing you are a God who is involved and who wants to give good things to his children. And so be with us, go with us, help us never to lose sight of our mission no matter what happens, that we always would desire first to help every person possible find real life in your son Jesus and look more like him every day. God help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I know you want to know, you will know. When it's time, you will know. Until then, keep your traps shut. <laughs> <laughs>